The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. First, let's go to John chapter 9. We're going to pick up in, in John 9, and we're going to begin in verse 13. This is right after Jesus heals the man who was born blind by sending him to the pool of Siloam. Remember, he put mud on his eyes and sent him to the pool of Siloam, and when he washed there, he was healed. So we're picking this up in the aftermath of that event. And let me tell you what this text is about. Here's what this is about. One of the things that I've realized as a pastor, somebody who does apologetics, somebody who does evangelism, is that no amount of evidence can convince someone to become a Christian. No amount of evidence can transfer someone from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Christianity is logical. In fact, it's the most, most truthful thing in the world. There's not a false note anywhere to be found in Christianity. The evidence for Christ and the claims of Christ is simply overwhelming. Remember Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence Demands a What? A Verdict. Evidence Demands Faith. There is enough evidence. There is more than enough evidence for you to know that Jesus is the Christ. It's simply overwhelming the amount of evidence that there is. First, for example, there's the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, probably the greatest prophet in Israel's history, testified that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God. There's the fact of the empty tomb. Regardless of what the skeptics say on the History Channel, nobody has ever explained the fact of the empty tomb. Some people say that Jesus didn't really just die on the cross. He just lapsed into unconsciousness, woke up in the tomb after somebody had stabbed him in the side and after he'd been crucified and himself rolled the stone away and walked away. Just outlandish theories that people have tried to use to explain away the resurrection. And then there's the reality of fulfilled scriptures. This was one of the apologetics that our Lord used over and over again. Jesus says this, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So if you go look at the Old Testament scriptures, you see that Jesus fulfills them over and over and over and over again. And that's how you know that he's the Messiah. And then, of course, there's the miracles that Jesus did. Jesus did miracles that pointed to the fact that he was indeed who he said he was, the Son of God. John writes, this is John chapter 20, he says, these are written, the signs, the miracles that Jesus did, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
So you can present all the evidence in the world. You can present all the evidence. I do it all the time. But yet people will still reject it, and here's why. Because unbelief is a spiritual issue. It's not just a mental issue. People can understand the truth of the gospel here, but they can reject it here. Sometimes the only difference in salvation is 12 inches, the distance between the head to the heart. So somebody can acknowledge the truth in their mind, but ultimately reject the gospel spiritually. I want to show you, if you turn to the right, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just a couple verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul describes why sometimes the gospel is not accepted. Because it's logical, it's rational, it's truth, it makes sense. Why is the gospel not accepted? Look at verse 14. I have this in brackets in my Bible to remind me. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So faith is a spiritual issue, and that's why you can explain the gospel logically. You can explain the truths of Christ rationally, and someone will still reject Christ. Let me give you one other verse. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I have to remind myself of these things over and over and over again as you present the gospel, because sometimes you get to the end of the gospel. You ask the person, did that make sense? And you said, yeah, I understand what Christ has done. I understand the claims that you're making. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. I understand it. I don't believe it. I have to remind myself of this. Look at verse 4. Actually, look at verse 3 first. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world. Who's that? Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul encountered this. Turn back to, to John 9, if you will. Paul encountered this over and over again where he would present the gospel. He would walk through it. And it, it was like he was speaking to a wall because people were rejecting the truth of the gospel spiritually. doesn't matter how much evidence you present, it'll still be rejected unless God opens their eyes to the truth. I once heard R.C. Sproul tell this story about a man who woke up one morning and his, his wife came and, and she said, why aren't you getting out of bed? And he said, I can't get out of bed. I'm dead. And she said, you're not dead. You're speaking to me. You're, you're sitting in bed. He's like, no, I'm dead. I can't get up. I can't put on my clothes. I can't go to work. And she said, you have issues. I'm calling the doctor. So the doctor comes over to the house and he said, sir, what happens to be the problem? He said, well, doctor, I'm glad you're here because there's a serious problem. I'm dead. And the doctor said, you're not dead. You're, you're speaking to me. He said, no, no, no. You need to understand something. I am dead, dead, dead. And so the doctor was like, man, what am I going to do with this guy? So he takes him to the hospital, down to the basement of the hospital, to the morgue. 
And he said, I want to explain something to you about dead people. Dead people never bleed. So let's take this pen and go up to a couple of the cadavers, and I want you just to prick, prick their skin. So he goes, and he does that. He says, what happened? He said, well, there was no blood. They must be dead. And he sterilized the needle, and he said, okay, now I want you to prick your finger just like that and see what happens. So he pricks his finger, and blood starts to come out, come down his hand. And the man said, what do you know? Dead people bleed after all. <laughs> Here's the point. You can present the gospel rationally, effectively, truthfully. It's logical. It is truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. The gospel is the essence of truth. Christ is the essence of truth. It's truth, truth. It's the bedrock of truth. You can present it, but the unbeliever, morally, morally speaking, because Satan has blinded his eyes, will not believe it. He will refuse to believe it. And I think, in my opinion, that's what John chapter 9 is about. There's almost no greater illustration in Scripture than people rejecting logic because they have a spiritual determination in their hearts and minds to reject the truth. That's what's happening in, in John chapter 9. Now, I want to show you something in the case of this man who was born blind that is incredibly significant. I'm going to have you turn to one other verse, okay? One other verse. This is, this is a very significant verse. This is in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 5. This is the prophecy that Isaiah gave about the coming Messiah. And he said, one of the ways that you will understand who the Messiah is is because he will do specific miracles. Look at verse 5. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue for the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So Isaiah says that the coming Messiah would do some very specific miracles. Namely, he would heal the eyes of the blind, open the ears of the death. If you study the Old Testament carefully, the New Testament carefully, nobody in the Old Testament ever heals someone that is blind. Nobody. Nobody in the New Testament heals somebody that is blind other than our Lord. And Ananias, Ananias when our Lord sends him to Paul to pray for him, and Paul again receives his sight. But nobody else heals someone in the New Testament that is blind or the Old Testament, and here's why. Healing the blind, healing the deaf represents the fact that only our Lord Jesus gives spiritual sight and spiritual hearing. A Christian is someone whose eyes have been opened to the truth. A Christian is someone whose ears have been opened to the truth. So here's why I had you turn here. Because the Pharisees, the Jews of the day, knew this. 
They knew this. You see, healing a blind man, healing a deaf man, healing um, a man who can't hear, all those things are messianic signs. They're signs that point to the reality that our Lord is indeed the Messiah. You remember when John the Baptist was having doubts about our Lord when he was in prison. In Luke 7, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus, and they asked Jesus, they said, John wants to know, are you the one, or, or should we look for another? Do you remember what Jesus says? He quotes this. He quotes Isaiah 35, 5. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, so on and so forth. He says, look at the messianic signs, and they're in fulfillment of the messianic prophecy. So if you would turn back to, to John 9. Thank you for doing that Bible sword drill. But, but that's important for understanding the background of what is taking place here. Did the Pharisees know that? Absolutely. They knew that if someone could heal the eyes of the blind, then that would mean that they are a Messiah. That's what it means. And what we're going to see is they are going to do everything that they can to reject that truth. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense. It's irrational as all unbelief is. So look at verse 13. They brought the uh, the man to the fair, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. You remember the, uh, the context of what had happened. Jesus was going on his way into the temple. They saw a man who had been blind from birth, and Jesus spit on the ground, took that mud, put it on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam means what? Sent. Who is Jesus? The one who is sent. You see the symbolism? The sent one is sending the blind man to the pool that is sent. That's the, he is being immersed into Christ for his healing. That's the significance. And then in the aftermath of his healing, there's all this commotion. Is this the actual beggar who was healed? No, it's his identical twin who looks just like him, not the same guy. And meanwhile, the guy who is healed is saying, I'm the man, I'm the guy, I'm the one who was healed. So there's this big commotion, and the people say, wow, this is a pretty significant thing that's happened. So we should take this guy to a ruling council to get a verdict on this, because this is significant. A man was, who was born blind has been healed. So if you look at verse 13, the, the group of people that had this big commotion, they bring this man to the Pharisees. Now, what does it mean when it says that they brought him to the Pharisees? The question that I wrote down, question mark, is I said, is this the Sanhedrin? Is this the Sanhedrin? What was the Sanhedrin? Remember, the Sanhedrin was the ruling body in Israel. It was made up, though, of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So because it says just Pharisees, we know that this is not the Sanhedrin. The next question I had is, is this an unofficial group? Like, is this just a few Pharisees sitting on a street corner? Or is this an official type of courtroom group, an official ruling? And I think it's the latter. I think it's the latter. And my reasons for thinking that is one, earlier in John, 
an official delegation of Pharisees was sent to discover what John the Baptist was doing at the Jordan River. That's in John 1.24. And two, when you read the proceedings, it seems like a formal court atmosphere. It seems like people are coming in and having to testify, and then at the end, as we'll see, a verdict is given. So to me, it seems like it is an official council of sorts. It's not the Sanhedrin, but it's a delegation of Pharisees that are part of the Sanhedrin that are now making their verdict about what has happened to this blind man. Their first point of consideration, their first point that they have to consider is that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. Look at verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, I want to challenge you. Go read your Old Testament, and I want you to find a law in the Old Testament that says it's wrong to heal a man on the Sabbath day. Here's the deal. You're not going to find that in the Old Testament. You're not going to find that in the Old Testament. The Jews at the time had developed what's called midrash, and that is their oral tradition of the law. They said, Moses said this in Deuteronomy, but what does that mean? And they made all these types of rules, all these types of rules. Like on the Sabbath, you weren't allowed to carry anything bigger than a plum. Couldn't do it. You also couldn't pick up your baby, and if your baby was carrying something bigger than, your, than the plum, you couldn't do that either. All sorts of rules like this. And one of the rules that they had made is that, I don't know why they made this rule, but they said that you couldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath unless it was life or death. That was one of the rules. They also said that you couldn't knead cakes and, and bake cakes. So Jesus kneading the mud and putting it on his eyes, well, that's, that's a violation as well. So they're concerned in terms of the Sabbath, not about Bible, but about their tradition in how they interpret the Sabbath keeping in the laws. So look at verse 15. So the Pharisees ask again, ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, and, and this is just a very clear statement of what happened. He says, he put mud on my eyes and I washed. That was when he went to the pool of Siloam. He says, and I see. So they're trying to investigate to see whether this healing actually took place. This man gives a very straightforward explanation. The man explains that Jesus put mud on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. You almost have to say that in a snooty voice, don't you? This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. <laughs> that, that's the, the legalism that, that's taking place here. Um, so one group of Pharisees says this, but then look, others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So there's a division in this body about already about what has taken place and about Jesus and about the fact that this man claimed that Jesus 
healed him. So here's the argument of the first group. Let me try and flesh this out for you. This is, this is essentially what they say. Here's their first premise. They say, all people who are from God keep the Sabbath. Then they say, second premise, this man does not keep the Sabbath, therefore he cannot be from God. That's their line of argument. The second group essentially says this. This is their first premise. Only people from God can work miracles. This man opened blind eyes. Conclusion, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Now, this group was a much smaller group and less effective in their argumentation than the other group. So, here's the problem with both of their arguments. Uh, the problem with the first group's argument is that their first premise is wrong. Their first premise is wrong. Why? Because they've, they've misdefined what it means to keep the Sabbath. They misdefined what the Sabbath keeping is, therefore their whole argument's wrong. The second group should have gone further it, if you work the miracle, if you work the miracle of Isaiah 35, it doesn't just mean that the man is not a sinner. What does it mean? It means that he's the Messiah. So they don't go far enough in what they are saying. So that's the problem with the arguments. Look at verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes. And, and this is a really good answer. You know, Jesus hasn't explained himself to him. Je there, there hasn't been a, a thorough conversation after the fact. And this man testifies that Jesus is a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone that is sent by God to speak for God. So this man, even though he's, he's not yet necessarily converted, he's coming to a knowledge of the truth gradually. And oftentimes, that's how the Lord works. That's how the Lord works. You, you're driving along the road, you hear something on the radio, or you hear a friend, and they share, they share a verse with you, and that truth sticks with you. It's not that you've come to a saving knowledge of the truth yet, but God begins to do that work with the truth in your life, and you begin to want to press in deeper and deeper. And that's where this man is. He says, this, this man, Jesus, he's a prophet. And, of course, he's going to learn that he's more than a prophet, but he is a prophet. He does speak for God. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says that Jesus is the ultimate prophet. So he's speaking truly. Look at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So I want you to see the level of unbelief here. They're, they're not even questioning that Jesus healed him. They're questioning whether he was even blind to begin with. They, they don't even understand that a miracle has taken place until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. So they call the parents, and then obviously the parents are going to confirm that, yes, this is the man who is their son who was born blind. So if you look at verse 19, they ask the parents two questions. There's two questions that are asked. First question, is this your son who you say was born blind? It's kind of like that courtroom 
you know, can you spot the, the accused in the room? Yes, he's wearing a blue jacket and a tie right there. They, they say, is this your son who was born blind? And they say in the, in the affirmative, yes, it is. And then they ask the other question, how then does he now see? So they answer the first question, verse 20. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. Check. Answer. Okay, very good. Second question, how does he now see? Now, I want you to notice something. They lie on the second question. They lie on the second question. They know how he sees. They know that Jesus healed him, but they don't say that. Look what they say. How he see, this is 21, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So, of course, they knew how their son had come to see, but they dodged the question, and here's why they dodged the question. Verse 22. John adds this. That's why it's in parentheses in your Bible. John adds why they dodged the question. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, so to confess Jesus to be the Messiah, that's the issue, the anointed one, he was to be put out of the synagogue. In other words, he would be rejected and expelled from the synagogue if you confessed that Jesus is the Christ. So to be put out of the synagogue would be like your entire social life being taken away. This is this this isn't 21st century America. This is Judaism. Your entire life involved around temple, synagogue, sacrifice. Your the relationship that you have with other Jews. This is your entire existence. And so they're saying that there was a, a rule that was going around Jerusalem that if anybody acknowledged that Jesus was the Old Testament Messiah. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. If anybody acknowledged that, they would put a ban on you from the synagogue. Think about that. So you go back to Capernaum after you've been in, in Jerusalem. You go back to Capernaum, and the, the rabbi at your synagogue says, no moss, can't come in. You're done, and, and you're put out of the society. So he, here's the thing. Did his parents... Did his parents understand the truth about Christ intellectually? Yes, they did. They understood exactly what had happened, that Jesus had healed them. Now, did they trust Christ in their heart? No. Why not? Because they were afraid. You see, there's many things that the devil uses to keep people in unbelief. There's many things. Prejudice, lack of knowledge, fear, fear. Fear is a weapon in the hands of Satan. John says this, John 12, 42. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So they believed Jesus here, 
but they wouldn't confess them with their mouth. They wouldn't believe here because ultimately they didn't want to lose their status in society. Now let me ask you a question. Does that ring home to you, 21st century Christian? Does that ring home to you? They were afraid to lose their social status. To truly have faith, to truly follow Christ, you must be willing to be hated by this world. You must be willing to be hated by this world, to be rejected by the guild, to be ostracized by the board, to be scoffed at by your family, to be laughed at by your sorority. Our Lord says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's saving faith. That's saving faith. It's being willing to count the cost in saying, I will follow Christ. Though none go with me, I still will follow regardless of the consequences. And this is important to think about because we are no longer in a Christian America. It's not 1950 where we're minting coins that say, in God we trust. And we're putting the Ten Commandments up on the walls. That day is gone. That day is gone. If you say that you are a Christian in intellectual circles, you are laughed out of the room. You say you're a Christian in Hollywood. You're not getting a contract for a movie. Forget about it. If, you're say, if you say that you're a Christian in the National Hockey League, people will ostracize you because you won't wear the right jersey that they want you to wear, right? That's what's going on in this culture. And we might not want to live in that culture. But you know what? God didn't ask our opinion he didn't ask our opinion. He put us here right now in this day and age to be the salt and the light in this dark world. And he's called you, Christian, to stand for Christ, to be a person of faith, to be a salt and light person, to be a person that says the Bible says it, I believe it, and to stand for Christ. Listen, David says this, Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I do not have to be afraid. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 51, 7, Isaiah says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their reviling. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Faith overcomes the world. John in the Revelation calls those who overcome the world, the overcomers, those who believe. You see, faith isn't just theoretical. It's the willingness to stand and be counted for Christ. And so I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard to be the only one to stand 
but Christ promises to be with you. Do you remember Paul at the end of 2 Timothy? He says, everyone deserted me. Everyone deserted me. But what did he say? But Christ was with me. Christ was with me. Christ will carry you through. Christ will give you the faith that you need to overcome. So the, this group is on the horns of a dilemma now. The parents have acknowledged that a miracle must have taken place because the, the, the son was born blind. The son claims that it was Jesus who did the miracle. So look at verse 24. For the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So here's what they're saying. They're saying, we know that you were born blind. We know a miracle has happened to you. We know that you claim that it was Jesus who did it. But for the sake of giving glory to God, we want you to be silent about it. We don't want you to tell anybody this. We don't want you to spread the news that, that Jesus did this to you. We want you to give glory to God for the greater good. Because Jesus, this guy that, that supposedly healed you, he's a sinner. He's a sinner. So if you go tell people that a sinner is the one who healed you, you're really going to mess things up. And that's not going to be honoring to God. Don't you always think it's interesting how non-Christians think that they know more about Christianity than you? You know, don't you know what Jesus is? Jesus said to love everybody. Jesus never talked about sin or anything. Don't you know that, Chris? They presume to know what it means to give glory to God. That, th that this man should bury the truth. That he should lie about Christ. Look at verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He basically says this. Uh, he says, the fact that he is a sinner, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. Uh, just because it's your opinion, that doesn't make it true. It's like people saying that cats are better than dogs. You can say it all day long, it doesn't make it true. <laughs> I say that as a cat owner. But just because somebody has an opinion doesn't make it fact. And he's saying, you say that he's a sinner. Okay, whatever that means. But this is what I know. This is what I know. That I was blind and now I see. He says, the truth is found in my own experience. You can't deny my experience. Okay, and this is, this is really important. Our, our faith doesn't rest on experience. It rests on truth. It rests on the fact of the crucifixion. It rests on the fact of the resurrection. Those are historical events. But we experience the spiritual power of those events in real time in our own experience that we are born again, that Christ does a work in our life. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know that Christianity is real because Christ has changed my life. And if, and if you are indeed a Christian, you know that to be true. Now, that might not be persuasive in the coffee shop, 
right? Because you say, Christ has transformed my life. And you, you, you throw that out there, and it might not be persuasive to the person you're sitting across from the table from, but you know what? It's persuasive to me because I've seen how Christ has changed my life. So that, that's something that's important for your own assurance of salvation. You know what Christ has done in your life. And that's where this man is. He says, you know, the Pharisees are saying, this, man's is, this man is a sinner. He's saying, yeah, but I know what he's done for me. I know that I was blind, and now I see. I have this experience that, that I can't deny in my own heart. So they, they say to him again, look at verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So again, he's already told them this. He's already explained this to, to them. They've heard it secondhand before that. Uh, so this is simply a question of unbelief. They're trying to go back to, to maybe pinpointing that, that there's a fraudulent claim here that he, he somehow came to see differently and Jesus wasn't really the one who, who opened his eyes. And, and this man won't have anything of it. Look at verse 27. He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now, do you catch the sarcasm there? I hope you catch the sarcasm there. He's not really asking them if they want to be his disciples. He knows that they don't want to be his disciples. Um, sometimes uh, you need a little spine or steel in your spine, don't you? You need boldness uh, when speaking. And this man, man, he, he, unlike his parents, he's willing to answer these powerful leaders. And he says, look, I've already told you you won't listen. By the way, that's what unbelief does. It doesn't listen. He says, why do you want to hear it again? I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine. Do you want to be his disciples? Do you want to, to, to follow him? Now, look at the next verse. They reviled him. So now they start making fun of him, start mocking him, start rebuking him. And look at their insult. This is their insult. They say, you are his disciple. You are his disciple. That's an insult. That's an insult. Now, he, he probably didn't see it as an insult. They saw it as, as an insult. It's like in Texas how you say, you are a Texas Longhorn, or you are a Duke Blue Devil. Now, we see, some people might see that as an insult. Others say, hey, that's not an insult. They mean it as an insult. But then look how they describe themselves. They say, we are disciples of Moses. How sad is that? How sad is that? How, did, how was Moses saved? How was Moses saved? By faith? Moses wasn't saved by keeping the law. He didn't even get to enter the promised land. He didn't even get to enter the land. He was up on Mount Nebo. He saw, he saw the land. He dies. Then the Lord buries him. He didn't even get to enter the land. If you're Moses' disciple, guess what? You don't get to enter heaven. You don't get to enter heaven. By works of the law, no one will be justified. You want to just self-justify yourself by following Moses? Good luck. Never going to happen. Won't happen. The only way to be justified is by faith in Christ. And by the way, that's who Moses looked to. 
That's who Moses looked to, is Christ and him crucified, looking forward. Verse 29, here's what they say. They say, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So they claim ignorance about the, the person of Christ. They say, we know Moses, we don't know Christ. And the man answered, and, and this, this is amazing. This is, this is, this is I, I love this guy's boldness. He said, why, this is an amazing thing. It's like this is the first time you finally admitted that you don't know something. This is the first time that you'll actually be quiet and admit that you don't know something. This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. Wow. Wow. Uh, Then he says, yet this guy, he is the one who opened my eyes. You can't deny my own experience. I know what happened. Now, verse 31, here's what he says, and, and this is good theology right here. This is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say, logic on fire. This is, this is sound. This is good. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He's getting it. He's making the connections. So here's his argument. He says, here's my first premise. And notice how his argument is better than both of the groups of the Pharisees. First premise, God does not listen to sinners But if someone is a man of God, God listens to him. Second premise, this man opened my eyes. Conclusion, verse 33. Here's the conclusion of his argument. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, this man opened my eyes, therefore this man is from God. He is not a sinner. Do you see that logic there? It's foolproof. It's perfect. And then they answered him, you were born in utter sin. They had this belief that if you were born blind, it was because your parents had done something sinful and and you were cursed and that's why you were born blind. And then they say, and you would teach us, you would presume to teach us, and look what happens. They cast him out. They cast him out. They cast him out of what? The synagogue. Out, out of Jewish life. He's done. They, they, they cast him out. Now let me ask you a question. Did this man present the right argument for Christ in the end? Was it the right argument? Absolutely it was. This was the argument that they all should have been making. It was the right argument And what was the result? Rejection. He was cast out. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter the tone in which you give the argument. Our world says you need to have the right tone. Let me tell you. The tone doesn't really matter. 
you will present the argument and you can say it in the nicest way possible with a smile on your face and you can buy them a coffee and you can sit across from them and you can present Christ and unbelief will still reject you for it. Unbelief will still reject you for it. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. God has to open the heart. God has to open the mind to the truth. And so in this world, though, in this world, especially as America is racing off a precipice to judgment, I believe, more and more you will encounter unbelief and you will be rejected for the truth. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It means it's, it's right. But that's the reality that we're facing because that's what unbelief is. It rejects, 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 regardless of the rationality of the argument that presents it. So be prepared. And by the way, this is another reason why we need the church. This is why we need one another in order to stand tall for the truth, because we are united in the truth. That's what the church is. This isn't a country club. This isn't a social group. This is a group that have been called out by the world. That's what church means. And ecclesia is those that are called out. Those that are called out of the world from our unbelief to now believe the truth. And now we stand arm in arm together in lockstep. This is the koinonia. This is the, the, the people who believe the truth. And that's why we need one another. We need the church in the 21st century because the world is darker than ever. Now, let's Go to the Lord in pray, prayer and ask for strength for the days ahead. Lord, we thank you for this picture, even here, of, of unbelief, so we know what we're up against in this world, that unbelief will not accept rational arguments, that unbelief will reject the truth over and over and over again unless you, by your sovereign power, open blind eyes. So, Lord, we pray for that. We pray that as we present the gospel that you would bring lost sinners from unbelief to belief. We pray, Lord, for courage, for conviction, for boldness, for still in our spines as we stand for the truth of God. We stand for, for the light in this dark world. May you give us strength, and Lord, thank you for giving us one another. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the church that we have one another, that we are united in this glorious truth of the gospel. Praise be to God. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We ask for this courage now. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.